That's why I'm here. And this was Peter's mindset. And in a sense, he's reminding us, you know, we're all the same. We should all have that same attitude of delighting to do God's will over our own wills. Quit being so self-centered and selfish about your life. Sacrifice. Live for your King. Live for your Lord. Don't just live for yourself. And so Peter is glorying in the fact that he's a slave. It's a beautiful thing. Of course, slavery in the human dimension was was something that brought great misery. It's always the result of sin, slavery. But in the spiritual dimension, it's a glory. It's an honor to be a slave. And and, uh, Peter identified with that. This was his new identity as a believer in Christ. It is our new identity as believers in Jesus Christ. But he goes on to add, that's the humble side. Then he adds... Just the authority that he has as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is now his relationship to Christ. Christ was the one who called him, who trained him, who appointed him to be one of the twelve apostles. And it's important for Peter to remind them that he is an apostle because he's going to be attacking the false teachers within the church. They need to know what his qualifications are, what his credentials are to speak against them so that they trust him, not what these false prophets or teachers are saying. So he needs to establish that authority paradigm. And he does that by referring to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then look at how he now begins to describe their faith. I love this. There's a lot in here in verse 1. He says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So the first thing he says here is he speaks to the origin of their faith. He says, you've received a faith. You've received it. In other words, someone gave it to you. You received it. It didn't come from within your own heart. It came from without. Therefore, you received it. And what do you have that you have not received? Paul says. But here Peter says, you have received a faith. And that speaks very much to the idea that faith is a gift of God. That our nature cannot produce faith in and of itself. The soil of our depraved heart is too rancid, it's too acidic for the virtue of faith to grow, to take root, to even begin. The soil of our hearts is so poisoned, it's so hostile to this virtue of faith that it cannot exist within our depraved hearts. The heart must first be changed. So it implies the gift the grace of regeneration must take place so that the soil is transformed so that now the gift of faith can be planted and it can grow because the heart's been changed. And that's what's implied when Peter says you have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Paul spoke of faith in Ephesians 2 when he said, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And that's what's implied here. The actual word received 
emphasizes it as well in the Greek because the word literally means to receive something by the drawing of lots. That's what that word means. Peter is saying to those who have received by the drawing of lots a faith of the same kind as ours. Well, what does that mean, the drawing of lots? Well, the drawing of lots, obviously, in the Bible, is one of the key ways that people determined God's will, God's decision, God's choice, is by drawing lots. So in effect, what Peter is saying is that you have received a faith by virtue of God's sovereign will. God has chosen it. God has given it to you. Now it's interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter starts out that letter calling his readers the elect of God. You are elect aliens, he says. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says you're a chosen race. So both Peter and both of his letters starts out with this great acknowledgement of the doctrine of election and that faith is a gift of God. So how do you know that that's the way the drawing of the lots indicated the, the divine will of God? Well, remember back in Proverbs 16, verse 33, says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the Lord is sovereign over the lot. And you, you thought it was lady luck or a chance or something that controlled the rolling of the dice or a lot. No, God is sovereign over the lot. And so throughout the Bible, when again, big, huge, important decisions were made, the people of God drew lots because they wanted God's decision. They wanted to know God's choice. So they drew lots because they knew God controlled the lot. So in Joshua 7, when Joshua and his men were defeated in the battle of Ai, they wanted to know from God who the guilty culprit was. They started drawing lots. They started with the tribe and they went to families and they got down to individuals and Achan was identified by the drawing of lots because God is in control of the lot. When they wanted to parcel out the promised land, they drew lots because they wanted to know, okay, the tribe of Judah, which land will you get? They drew lots. So God's will and determination would be known. And even in the replacement of Judas in Acts chapter 1, when it was time to bring in another man to replace Judas, it says they prayed and said, You Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So again, they drew lots because they wanted to know God's choice. So what Peter is saying is you have received by the drawing of lots a faith like ours. And in effect, what he's saying is that God has chosen you by the virtue of life, sovereign over it, to give you this gift of faith. So Peter is very emphatic, really, in emphasizing that faith is a gift of God. So if you're here this morning, and you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, 
But you know you cannot save yourself. And you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. That faith did not arise from within your own free will. Our will would have nothing of it until the heart is changed, but that it is a gift of God. So that we should not just thank God for our salvation, but thank ourselves for our faith. No, we're to thank God both for our salvation and the faith that trusted Christ to receive that salvation. And that's really what Peter is emphasizing in this. And then quickly he moves on and he talks about the quality of their faith. It's a faith of the same kind as ours. So what's he referring to here? Well, again, it can be translated based upon which translation of the Bible you have here this morning. The NIV says a faith as precious as ours. King James, a like precious faith. Or the ESV of equal standing with ours. So there's really, if you combine all this, there are two basic ideas that this word emphasizes. One is equality, the other is preciousness. And both of these describe our faith. So the first thing he says to his readers is, you have a faith that is equal with ours. And who, who are the ours? They're probably the apostles. And this is an amazing thing. Peter is writing to these people and he's saying, you know what? Your faith is just like our faith. You think, well, golly, the apostles, man, they had... They had this a different kind of faith. Their faith was so incredible and supernatural. No, our faith is like their faith. Their faith qualitatively. Now they may have people have more faith. There can be some with a greater faith and lesser strong faith and weak faith. So the so so that aspect of it can change. But there's an aspect of our faith that we all share equally, and that's what Peter is saying. In other words, we don't put someone up on a pedestal because somehow they have a, a faith that the quality of it is, is in totally higher than that. No, we're all on the same level. So that he's emphasizing that all who have faith, saving faith, no matter how great or small the amount is, that faith nevertheless is just like Peter's in the sense that it's connected to the same heavenly origin. It comes from God. It's focused on the same Savior, Jesus Christ. It brings the same blessings, the same inheritance. It's the same faith. And I think for people to realize, you know, my faith is in that regard, like Peter's faith, is a pretty amazing thing for Peter to say. So there's an equality aspect that's found in this phrase. The same kind as ours, equal standing with ours. But there's also this idea that our faith is precious. It's a precious faith. Now in 1 Peter 1, Peter's already said that our faith is more precious than gold. And when you think about it, the faith that God has given to you and me is a precious faith. It's precious because it saves us from our greatest problem, which is sin. It's precious because it saves us from our greatest danger, which is hell. 
It's precious because it gives to us our greatest glory, and that is our inheritance in heaven. Nothing else can do that for you, but faith can. So faith is precious because it takes away our sin through the blood of Christ. It helps us to trust in the Lord Jesus. He's now my Lord and Savior. And it gives us the hope of glory yet to come. And all true faith will grow and bear fruit to some degree, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. But it's a living faith. It's a precious faith. It's a God-given faith. So this faith of the same kind of ours is definitely a precious faith. And then we look at the object of our faith. And here Peter writes, we've received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now again, your Bible may have the preposition by, through, and some older ones have in. And again, two different ideas could come from this. One may be, Paul, excuse me, Peter is just saying that our faith is by the righteousness of God. It's through the righteousness of God. And here he has the idea that you find in Romans chapter 3 that it's God's righteousness that brings His grace that brought salvation to us. So God could be both righteous, just, and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So here the righteousness of God is just linked to God's plan of salvation, the grace that brought down Christ so God could be righteous and also holy and saving sinners like us. Maybe that's one of the ideas. But it could also be translated in. And in this sense, our faith is in the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Christ because He's righteous. And not only is He righteous, but He gives us His own personal righteousness as a gift when we're justified. So it could be that idea. Either one seems to work well. But then notice the last thing. This is kind of a... He opens with like a a theological uh, banquet table here because he ends verse 1 by saying, referring to Christ as our God and Savior. And the way this is worded in this particular verse, what Paul, what, excuse me, what Peter is saying is that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. It's actually one of the clearest verses on the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes and knocks on your door and he wants to give you his watchtower, false gospel literature, and he'll deny that Jesus Christ is God. If you had the patience and the time, you could walk him through this because this is how Peter understands Jesus. He is both God and Savior. Real quickly, the way that works is in the Greek, you have the article the, and then you have a noun. In this case, is the noun God, and then the word and, and then another noun, which here is, is the word Savior. And when you have article, noun, conjunction, noun, in the Greek, the two nouns refer to one and the same person. This is called the Granville Sharp Rule of Greek Grammar. 
So what, what Peter is using here is clear terminology to indicate that Jesus Christ is both our God and our Savior. So true faith believes that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus told the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am, referring to God's name that He gave to Moses at the burning bush, when Moses asked God, what's your name? I'm going to go back and tell him, what's your name? I need to tell him your name. And God says, tell him, I am that I am sent you. Tell them, I am has sent you. Jesus says, unless you believe I am, equating himself with God, the Old Testament, within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you don't have a Savior. Because only God can take away the everlasting eternal punishment of our sin. A creature cannot do it. You must believe that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Or you don't have a Savior. Paul emphasized this as well in Colossians 3, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the two natures of Jesus Christ, about as clear as you can find it in one verse. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The divine nature, the human nature. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, understood this. When he finally saw Christ and, and Christ told him to stick his finger in the wounds, and how did he respond? My Lord and my God. He understood that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. It's essential to saving faith. We must also believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Because there's no one else who can save us but Jesus Christ. That's why Peter, who wrote this letter, said back in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Nobody else can save you. You cannot save yourself. Mary cannot save you. Moses cannot save you. Mohammed cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save. And you must come to Him in repentance and faith. And He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will grant you His own perfect righteousness, which, is enable, which will enable you to stand in the presence of God. There is no other Savior but Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. That's the name Jesus gave to Joseph that he should call Jesus. When he told him that your wife, Mary, will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Christ is he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So Peter starts out with some pretty heavy-duty theological statements to begin his letter with. Real quick, just verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Here, Peter separates God and Jesus. So before he's God in verse 1, now he's, he's a separate person within the Godhead. You have God and Jesus. They're separate. So he, he's, he's tipping his hand to the doctrine of the Trinity. He begins with grace. That was a typical greeting for the Greeks. And he adds to it peace, which is the Jewish greeting. These churches were com made up of both 
uh, Jews and Gentiles. So it's a, it's a beautiful greeting. We need grace. We need peace. And he says, may God multiply it to you. May He increase it. Because we all need more grace. We all need more peace. May God multiply that to you. What a, what a tremendous benediction. What a, an incredible prayer that is valid for us today as well. But then notice how he ends. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See that grace and peace grows when we grow in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now this word knowledge, Peter in this letter loves the word knowledge. He'll use it 16 times in its various forms in this letter. This particular word is an intensive word. He'll use it six times. It's the word epinosis. And the emphasis on epinosis is not only intellectual knowledge. You got to know the doctrinal truths of the gospel, which everybody needs to know. That's a part of it. But this intensive word emphasizes you don't stop with just academic intellectual knowledge of, of the truth about God and Jesus Christ. You've got to start there, but you need more than that. You've got to take that truth and let it transform your life. It's a deeper, fuller, richer, more intimate, personal relationship knowledge that epinosis refers to. That's what he's wanting for his readers. That they grow not only in grace and peace, but that would be multiplied to them, but it will grow as we grow in our knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We kind of think of the difference between head and heart knowledge, and that's an artificial way to think of it, but it's kind of true in a sense that it's not just head knowledge, it's knowledge that impacts us. So we're, we're a, a, a more godly husband or more godly wife, or we're more obedient to our children, or, or I try to be the best employee that I can at work to honor God. I want to live out my faith and love people and be a witness for Jesus Christ. It's more than just knowing it here. It's living it out on a day-to-day basis. That's what Peter wants for us. He wants us to grow in the grace and peace that comes with the knowledge of God. Not just knowledge about God, but knowing God. Drawing near to Him in His Word and in prayer so that we really grow to know God as our personal Lord and Savior. He not only begins the letter that way, He ends it this way. He ends by saying, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what He wants for us in this church this morning. Well, do you have that knowledge of the Lord? Is your knowledge primarily just intellectual or theological? A lot of people have theological knowledge, but they really don't know God. It's all up here in the head. It's academic. What true saving faith is, is it it comes with regeneration, a born again, a new heart that loves the Lord for what He's done to save us from our sins. It puts our faith wholly and totally in Jesus Christ for salvation, knowing that we cannot save ourselves. Do you have that kind of faith? Not that we're sinless or perfect. We flub up all the time. I do. 
But my desire is to repent when I sin and to, to draw back to live a life that honors the Lord. And if you have that kind of faith, then you're welcome to partake of the table this morning. Those who have that kind of faith on the last day, they will hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. But if you do not have that faith this morning, you will hear the Lord say, Depart from Me, ye accursed ones. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him today. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that we deserve the judgment and wrath of God. There's only one person who can save you. And put your faith and trust in Him alone. Jesus Christ who died on the cross bearing our sin, suffering the penalty of the wages of God's wrath that we deserve. So that any sinner who turns and repents and believes in Jesus Christ will be given the free gift of everlasting life. So we would call upon you to trust in the Lord. For those who have put their faith in Christ, we now have the privilege of celebrating, remembering the Lord's death for us, the agony, the pain that He endured to pay the price so that our sins could be given. Again, this is for only for believers. And we would ask you this morning, we've already had a call to repentance earlier. But it's appropriate before we partake just to stop and think about our life. Acknowledge our sin. Maybe acknowledge how we've fallen short in so many ways. How we've neglected so many good things that we should be doing. We haven't been reading our Bible. Maybe we haven't been praying. We've just been becoming too worldly. Confess that. And let your heart go to Jesus Christ in light of who He is. Fully God and fully man. And what He did for us on the cross. He died and suffered to save us from our sins. And now we're forgiven of all of our sins. And let your heart go to Him in praise and worship and love and thanksgiving for all that He's done to save us. Because He's our God, He's our Lord, and He's our Savior. We break the bread as a reminder of the brokenness of Jesus on the cross, how His flesh was torn as a part of the suffering that He endured to save you and to save me from our sins. As Isaiah prophesies, that He was crushed for our iniquities, our transgressions. But we have unleavened bread as we will pass it because it best symbolizes the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. That's why He could be our Savior and die in our place because He had no sin of His own. So, we're going to pass the bread and you can partake whenever you're ready or you can hold it and partake at the end. But the point of all of this is to remember Christ. To remember Him. So let your thoughts go to Him and just worship Him and praise Him for all that He's done for us.
the ushers would please come forward, pass the bread. And as they're coming, I will uh, pray and give thanks to the Lord. Our Father, again, thank You, Lord, for Your incredible love for sinners like us, that You sent Your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, thank You for loving us. Thank You for giving us faith that we could turn from our wretched idolatries and our abominations and look upon Jesus Christ by faith and receive His healing, His spiritual healing, His forgiveness, and the free gift of everlasting life. Thank You, Lord, for all that Jesus is and all that He's done for us. And we praise You in His name. Amen.